This is Paul Zak. You're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Podcast, click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkus.com slash podcast or text radio free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Paul Zach. I am the author of Trust Factor, The Science of Creating High-Performance Companies, and I'm an economist and a neuroscientist at Claremont Graduate University in Southern California. See, okay, so you said you're a, an economist and a neuroscientist, but you're also a neuroeconomist, which is a term I'm pretty sure you coined, but I love nonetheless. Uh, I may have <laughs> been the first person to use it in print. Um, yeah, so, you know, David, we know that people are not perfectly rational, optimizing agents like economics teaches. And to sort of get out of this corner that economists had painted themselves into, I decided to measure brain activity while people made decisions to find out why they were doing what they were doing. And in doing so, other people were doing this at the same time too. We really understood a lot about, in particular, social decisions. So those would be in this uh, area of, of economics and mathematics called game theory, how our decisions depend on other people's decisions, and uh, it's been a it's been an interesting uh, fifteen year ride doing this. Yeah, you know, at the core of a lot of those studies, um, and I, this is fascinates me. And I first became aware of your work actually uh, long, long after you had written it. But uh, so apologies there. Um, but in writing my most recent book, because at the core of a lot of your research has been this tiny little molecule that seems to do so many different fascinating things, including uh, affects how we trust each other. Right. So this little ancient molecule, as you said, oxytocin, was only associated with uh, maternal behaviors, uh, birth, breastfeeding, care for offspring in mammals. Um, and yet a, a animal literature suggested that males were affected by it, too and that it might have more to do than just care for offspring. So we developed a technology to measure oxytocin in humans uh, using very rapid blood draws. And we found that when someone trusts you in a tangible way, your brain produces this chemical in proportion to the degree of trust shown, and it motivates people to reciprocate. So I think of this as like the biological basis for the golden rule. You're nice to me, my brain makes this chemical that says, Oh, that's David Perkis. He's awesome. I'm going to play nice with him uh, because he seems like a great guy to be around. So it helps us balance the appropriate fear of being around strangers with the value of make, making new friends or acquaintances or work colleagues or whatever. Um, and, and that's how we 
navigate through the sea of strangers in which we live is by having something in our head that says, uh, you know, David Burkis seems like a nice guy to, to, to hang out with. And uh, I don't know, his next door neighbor, Bob, who's just scary looking, um, I just want to stay away from him. You've got it the other way around, actually. Bob is an amazing guy. No, I'm totally kidding. So, I mean, what I think is so interesting about this is, and and uh, you know, I was I was the same as most people for a long time. Just assumed that um, oxytocin had a little bit to do with love, for example. Like my wife used to joke about, like when she gets a hug from the kids or from me, et cetera, that like that's her little hit of oxytocin for the day. Um, but we generally associate, at least medically, associated it with uh, childbirth and child rearing, et cetera. And when we start, when you, when I don't say we, I had nothing to do with it, but when you and others really started to look into this, one of the most fascinating things, at least from my perspective, is the sort of upward or upward spiral of trust, right? Trust begets trust. It's this idea that like showing trust, feeling trusted inspires trustworthy behavior, which ironically causes trustworthy behavior, which makes you feel more trust, which it just keeps sort of spiraling up from there. Unless I'm totally wrong and I've been reading your stuff wrong the whole time. No, you're exactly right. So someone's got to start this kind of virtuous cycle working, and then it can actually be sustained for quite a period of time. It's one reason why the very high-trust countries, uh, in, in general, the Scandinavian countries, uh, ha- are very prosperous because it's easy to interact with people when you trust them. It reduces the frictions of social interactions. Um, so as we were doing this work, um, companies started knocking on my door of my lab and saying, Hey, we think trust at work is kind of important. You're supposed to be some kind of trust expert. Can you tell us what we can do to create a trusting culture? And at first, my answer was, oh, yeah, I'm a neuro guy. I'll come in and I'll draw blood from your employees and we'll just measure uh, oxytocin. And, you know, their faces turned white. And uh, they're like, "Uh, that's not a good idea. Although a number of companies, as I report in the book, actually have let us come in and draw blood and measure brain activity other ways from their employees while they worked, which was super cool. Um, so in running these experiments on employees working and on, and on uh, you know, captive humans called students uh, working in my laboratory uh, in experiments, we identified eight factors that leaders can use to create a culture of trust. And we've shown that high trust organizations are substantially better performing than low trust organizations Again, with multiple measures, higher productivity, more energy at work, lower employee turnover, fewer sick days. People who work in high-trust companies are happier and healthier. They're better employees. They're better citizens. They're better parents and uh, spouses. I mean, it seems like, at least I'm, I'm looking at how all of this should work logically in my brain. Um, it's, it seems like that is the mediating, mediating factor is kind of how the way that the, the trust shapes the overall company culture. And, you know, culture is that weird sort of amorphous, you know, it's how we do things around here, et cetera. But it's interesting to me to see that sort of you would think we take deliberate steps to shape a culture and then that causes trust. But it seems like it goes the other way. Once we sort of start this upward spiral of trust, it leaves positive imprints on our organizational culture. Well, I think, people, I think what you said is exactly right. So people sort of think that culture, which is just norms of behavior that people are going to develop whenever you put people in a group, is somehow fixed. Uh, you know, we're stuck with a culture in our company that we started with or that's here um, for a couple of reasons. One is that it did seem amorphous. So we developed a measurement tool so that companies can actually measure trust within their organization by location, by business unit, by division. 
and the building blocks that trust are created from. So now you've got a tool, which actually the, the book gives you a, a URL to use, so you can get a snapshot of what trust looks like in your culture. And then once you can measure it, you can manage it, right? So, you know, I think as a leader, you have two choices. You can say, I'm just going to accept culture the way it is, and, um, you know, I, I'm going to do everything else right, and I'm just going to leave that alone. I don't want to touch it. Or you can say, hey, you know what? People do have norms of behavior, and if we can measure that, then we can manage that so we can modify culture and uh, create a culture where people are really engaged, they love coming to work, their energy is high, they're innovative, and all those things we've shown come out of having a culture of trust. So the, the book and the work we've done over the last eight years tries to be really useful. So the book, as you remember, David, has at the end of each chapter this so-called Monday morning list in honor of Peter Drucker, my, uh, my late colleague at Claremont. Right, so it's five things you can do. You finish chapter seven. Here's the five things you should do on Monday when you get to work. Um, so it's, you know, it takes a while to go from the basic research to here are the prescriptions that you can use to improve your, your culture. Uh, and, and the honest truth is, if you don't manage culture, culture is going to manage you. The humans are going to figure out ways of doing things and maybe they're terrific and maybe they're terrible and you're not going to know unless you take a look and then begin to manage it. I mean, that's a really good point. You know, a lot of, we, we tend to look at culture as like, we look at companies that stand out for their great culture, Zappos, for example, or Southwest airlines, et cetera. Uh, and what we don't realize is that every organization has a culture, right? It, it either was the result of deliberate efforts to especially increase trust between uh, management and employees, but, um, it was either the result of deliberate effort to shape it or or it's a terrible culture, usually because it was the result of no effort to shape it whatsoever, and then it just kind of happened. Exactly right. In fact, Zappos, uh, a long-term consulting client, and they gave us permission to report their data in the book. So um, Zappos works very hard, as you know, to hire the right people, to put them in a culture where they can really flourish. And what we found is that, you know, while you might, you know, as a, as a sort of narrow-minded uh, leader, think that my number one metric for success is profit. Um, but, you know, if, if there's a lot of examples in the book of companies I've worked with where their employee turnover is 100% per year. So they're spending a humongous amount of money replacing people who are trained already. So that's a pain point, And that can be affected by the kind of environment you put people in. So I think Zappos has done a great job at having a living culture where people really know what's in it and what's there. And actually that's, that's the kind of light motif of the book is, is I set up a structure to help managers uh, actively manage their culture. So just like the Toyota production system is about continuous improvement in, in production processes. I use the same kind of idea to create a structure in which managers can continuously measure and improve their culture by making continuous small interventions and empowering those within the culture to give feedback on those interventions, right? Is this working for me? Is this great? Is this not working? Um, so you've got to be transparent. And I like the word experiment. I call these management experiments. So if you're, if you're the leader and you say, hey, you know, I, you know we realize that turnover is really high in our organization. And um, we read this crazy book, Trust Factor, and we think we can do these three, three things to, uh, to make it a better place to work, to make it more engaging. And as you know, David, it's not about money. Very few people leave uh, because of money. So we're going to try this thing for six months, and we're going to see how it works, and we think it's going to be great, and we're going to reassess in six months and get your feedback. And 
it's just an experiment. So some of these factors we change may work for us, some don't. What don't, we'll go back to the status quo. And the things that do, we'll just stick with it and then we'll continuously try to improve it. So if you use the word experiment, you know, we're just going to give it a shot. And I think it takes the pressure off leaders too to be somehow omniscient about all possible things within their organization. You know, no, no one has that knowledge base. Hmm. So you used a word in there that's one of my uh, favorite words. I was not certainly not expecting for this to turn into my favorite words. I wasn't expecting to uh, end up talking so much about this and having having most people, thanks to Ted, um, seeing me as this. But you mentioned the word transparency, right? Which uh, I you know I love in your book. You also talk about salary transparency, but it's it's bigger than that. There's this whole need to establish this culture of openness in order to kind of increase trust. And actually, it's sort of like it's it's reciprocal, right? Because openness explains a lot of organizational trust. But um, it's also not uh, just encouraging employees to be open with each other. It's it's that openness and transparency about what management's doing at every step, which is a hard thing to do. It is, but what we found in studies we've done is that if individuals, first of all, know what's coming down the pike, then they can be much more effective. And, and importantly, if they know why some change is being made or why some program is being instituted or why we're taking on this new direction in the company, then they don't have to spend time with a water cooler going, hey, did you hear about this? Are we going to be sold? Are we laid off? Blah, blah, blah. They can just focus on the task at hand. So um, the why question is something that leaders, I think, often try to avoid. They'll say, Town hall meeting, okay, uh, for this quarter, we're going to do A, B, and C. But they don't really say why. They just say, we, you know, the, the gods of the, of the uh, leadership decided this was great. Well, why? How did you decide? On what basis? What's the plan? Why are we doing this? How do we know if it's working? That would be an interesting conversation to have. And it just reduces the underlying uncertainty about where the company is going and we've shown experimentally that uncertainty causes a stress response, which inhibits the release of oxytocin so that people don't work as well together in teams. So it all feeds back on the neuroscience. Does it, does it go the other way? Is there also sort of if, if uh, uncertainty sort of inhibits it, does, does certainty or does a feeling that you're being trusted with information that's kind of you're not normally trusted with, does that increase the hit? It does. In fact, uh, many companies we profile in the book, like Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and Zappos, uh, really have this sort of open kimono approach, which is they give their employees uh, quarterly profit and loss statements. They, um, you know, include them in a lot of filings, which are are you know private. Uh, in particular, Trader Joe's, as you know, is owned by Aldi, and so that's not a publicly traded company, and you know that information eventually leaks out. Um, so, yeah, it, it really shows, hey, we trust you and we want you to understand um, what's going on. So when you treat individuals as if they are part of the leadership, they start making decisions like owners. And so you need, therefore, less oversight, less micromanagement, and you can substitute judgment for rules, which is also a, a trust-inducing savings in time and, and energy. So one of the uh, companies profiled in the book is a company called Thrivent used to be Thrivent Financial for Lutherans. And, uh, you know, Lutherans are Germanic people and they like rules, like to follow rules. And in about 10 years ago, uh, Thrivent had so many rules on travel. You can buy one drink, but not true. You can buy two drinks for a client, but only if they're a really good client and you have to, you know, spit on your toes three times before you turn in your report. And they finally got rid of all that. So they started this rule busting committee and they just said, what drives you guys crazy? What wastes your time that doesn't help us? 
and they really worked hard on substituting substituting rules, no, sorry, judgment for rules. So one of those, for example, was they had this very explicit dress code, and they changed that to what I think is the most beautiful and simple way to encourage people to dress properly, which is dress for the job you want. Hmm. That's great, right? So yeah, if you want to wear flip-flops and jeans, that kind of tells me if you're uh, you know, wearing a, a nice suit and maybe open collar, that tells me something else. So you know, that's a sense of judgment, that I'm going to treat you like an adult, and I'm going to trust you to make good decisions. I don't want to be micromanaging people and going, hey, you know, your, your skirt is an inch too short above your knee or some kind of crap. I don't have time for that, right? If, if I'm spending my time as a leader doing that kind of stuff, I'm not focused on creating an amazing product or service for my clients. I'm not focused on having people have a reasonable work-life integration so they're getting home on time. You know, I'm doing all kinds of BS stuff that doesn't really improve the stuff we're, we should be doing, which is creating excellence. Hmm. Um, I want to be Batman. So how should, how should I dress? No, I'm okay. I'm kidding. You don't have to answer that. You, you sort of danced around a term that I want to make sure we, we talk about because I think it's important to this idea of, of openness, not only in, uh, hearing what employees are saying and being open to that idea and making changes because of it, but making sure that when you are disclosing things that people are hearing it, it's this term inclusive listening. Can we dive a little deeper on what that is and why it's so important? It is. Again, uh, you know, again, another theme in the book is to view people that you work with as human beings, not as human capital. So human beings have brains and have ideas and have emotions and have fears and have personal lives. And so when you listen to those individuals, you're going to acquire so much information. So if you're a leader and you're not getting that information from the front lines, then you're not very going to be very effective because you know you're only getting filtered information. So first of all, spend time on the front lines for sure. Um, so one of the components of, of these eight components that build trust is a component we call yield, which is allowing people who are doing the job the freedom, the trust to execute projects as they see fit. What that means is that you're going to uh, get small variations in the way projects are executed. And what you hope for is that you're going to find some positive deviations in that. Someone will figure out a way to do it faster, cheaper, more effectively. And then after that project's over, uh, we have a component called Ovation where we celebrate people who are performing um, at or beyond goals. And during that, there's a debrief. So we talk about, oh, David's team just finished this project for GE, and they finished it two weeks early and under budget. Yay, we're going to have a big celebration. We're going to give you guys some gifts. We're going to let you have a chance to rest and celebrate. Also, we want to figure out how the hell you got so smart. And I, as a leader, need to be there and listen and share that information through the company. So there's a lot of learning that goes on in the front lines. And to not have it percolate through the company is just absolute waste of important information. So, so this brings us to a concept in the book that you call um, transfer, and you you talk about it in the context of yield as sort of being yield on steroids. To me, it's it's the sort of it's the the good things that start to happen when all of this is clicking and working together. Is that fair to, to refer to it as? That's perfect, David. Right. So transfer really is my word for enabling self-management or job crafting, as it's sometimes called. Um, so if I'm in a workplace in which we know our objectives, we have the resources and the training to be effective, we have leaders slash coaches who are going to help us be effective, then uh, teams and individuals can essentially choose what work they want to do. And so, as you know, you'll get complete buy-in. Instead of assigning you to a project that maybe you care about, maybe you don't, 
just doing it for the payday. They always say, look, we got this cool client coming in who needs this kind of thing. Who's interested? Who has capacity? How do we build a team around someone to do this work? So now I'm like, oh, yeah, this, this, I dig this. This is great for me. Um, so really enabling that self-management. So an example in the book from that is a software uh, company called Valve that makes a bunch of online multiplayer games. Left 4 Dead is their, is their big game. And they hire smart people and mostly uh, programmers. And they give them this desk on wheels. And they say, look for a project that seems interesting and rewarding to you. Oh, gosh, that's a whole different ball game than we hired you to be an accountant. Here's a stack of books to do, right? So um, they expect these guys to contribute. They know in the first couple of weeks they're going to bounce around between different groups. And then when the project's over, that group will do a 360 and evaluate everyone's contribution and give people feedback. Um, but that's a real different ball game than you're in this slot, you're in this slot forever. Good luck to you. Um, so uh, even a lot of the big management consultants now, I talk about Goldman Sachs and McKinsey, they have these great internal programs to train people to get their next job, to advance through the kind of career path they would like to have, but to create their own career path. So they have uh, professional um, career coaches who work for them. And you can just book in time with the career coach that says, hey, you know what, I, I'm doing X, but I really want to be doing Z. So how do I, do I have to go through Y? Do I, can I jump from X to Z? How do I do that? What training do I need? And then again, people think, oh, this organization is pretty awesome because I'm getting to do whatever I want to do. Um, so anyway, I think that's a great example. Well, I think you have to go back to, to D and then start. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, I love I love Valve. I, I wrote about them in Under New Management. I, I, also, I love the idea of all of their desks have wheels. You can just plug, unplug two cords from the floor and, and move around to work on whatever project team. And to, you know, to some extent, what we're, what we're getting at when we talk about these things, whether it be Valve or whether it be Goldman Sachs, et cetera, is we're talking about a shift in the balance of power too in organizations, right? To where knowledge, talented, knowledge, knowledgeable employees kind of have a greater ability to call the shots, which unfortunately disrupts all of the other ways we're used to managing and ways we're used to sort of creating culture and leaves us with basically trust kind of becomes the only lever we have left to pull in this new world of work. It does. And, uh, you know, I cite some evidence in the intro to the book that about one third of the U.S. population now is in the gig economy. They work simultaneously for multiple employers. And so these people are highly mobile. They're highly skilled. And if you treat them like crap, they are not going to work for you because they have other options. So, um, you know, I say the war for talent is over and talent has won. And so, yeah, let's create a, a really cool workplace where you actually want to volunteer your services to me to help our organizational goals. And yeah, I'm going to pay you for that, but essentially you're still a volunteer. And so I should treat you like a volunteer and I should empower you to be successful. The war for talent is over and talent has won. I love that. I love that concept. So no, I mean, you're, so you're exactly right. And this is what, um, you you only have the ability left when when they can kind of call the shots when you can say this is what you're doing you you only really I mean all all of the other manuals all of the not to throw all of these people under the bus but the one minute manager model the four box model from this consulting firm etc they start to sort of fall by the wayside because talent calls the shots and if talent doesn't feel trusted talent goes somewhere else yeah who wants to be micromanaged I mean you've worked at places and I have where. You know, you got supervisors just on your butt all the time. And, you know, it's like, dude, I got to, I mean, honestly, I had a PhD. I can do this job. Just get out of my way. Just just give me some, some runway. I'm good. If I get in trouble, I'm happy to reach out to you, right? But 
um, you know, it, it makes no sense at all. Even if you don't have a PhD, it makes no sense. If you're trained, um, you, know, I, you know, I said this earlier, but, you know, you should train, uh, you know, extensively and then delegate generously. I mean, let people do their thing. And even in my own, in my research work, my own lab, it's amazing when you give people space how they innovate. So here's a stupid example because it's so silly, but um, we do a lot of blood draws in my lab, and uh, it's that's the bottleneck when we run experiments. So you come in, you get a baseline blood draw, then you do some tasks, get another blood draw, and we have a chair, we have a special blood draw room that's OSHA approved, and a phlebotomist, and we have one phlebotomist because what? I'm a cheap guy, and I want to pay for two because I'm only going to use that person for like an hour. So anyway, there's always a bottleneck there. So I want that seat to be warm. I want one person in, one person out. Um, great. I'm on some trip. They're running an experiment with blood draws. I come back. I see the blood draw room. And now there are two chairs in a partition. And I go, oh, hey, what happened here? And the guy in my lab goes, oh, yeah, we realized that we're, we're wasting so much time having the person waiting for their blood draw to roll up their sleeve, to uh, you know, put the tourniquet on. And so we just put two chairs in and a little partition. And, and now the phlebotomist goes back and forth. And we have a undergraduate who just preps them for the, for the blood draw. And we saved like, you know, 20 minutes in each experiment. Oh, I love these guys. Right. So I don't care. Make it better. I, you know, I mean, uh, you know, that's perfect. I want you to try new things. If it doesn't work, you can go back to one chair. Right. No one, no one died. Yeah. Well, we hope, but yeah, uh, no. And that's a, that's a great example. And actually a good transition. Cause I wondered if we could talk about, um, a lot of your actual research that informs this, you know, I first became aware of your work. Um, well, actually I think I first became aware of your work with the Ted talk, uh, in around love, not necessarily trust, but then around your work in trust and in neuroeconomics and in particular in kind of playing this sort of trust game back and forth that showed that trust is sort of a, a reciprocal thing. Trust sort of has this upward or downward spiral depending on how you do it. Tell us a little bit about some of the research that you do that, that led to this. And for those that are listening and still wondering why he mentioned phlebotomist, uh, maybe clues in on why that's so important. Right. Okay. So um, you know, I had done some work in the late 90s, early 2000s showing that trust was a powerful uh, lever to economic performance. And people would ask me this question, well, you know, why do we trust strangers? And I, I could tell you about the environment in which trust is more likely to happen in Denmark versus, uh, I don't know, Colombia. Um, but we really want to know a mechanism in the brain. And so uh, we used a experimental economics task invented by Vernon Smith, who won the Nobel Prize for, for his work in this area, in which people could share money with each other. And, and the more money you shared, the more money the more that money would grow in size, but then the other person controlled this larger pie and they were no obligation to return it to the person who sent them this, this chunk of money. Um, but almost always when someone sacrificed out of their own pocket to send you, send them money, send you money, uh, they would return it. 95% of the people return money and economists were sort of flummoxed by this because the sort of standard view in economics is that it's kind of this caveman view, right? Money, good. Me like money, me keep money. Um, but people weren't doing that. And uh, so the question is, first of all, why would you ever trust someone with your money? And then if you were trusted, why would you reciprocate? And so uh, because of my background in biology and neuroscience, I knew this literature in animals that suggested that this brain chemical oxytocin signaled a safety or familiarity in rodents. And I thought, well, maybe the same thing works in humans. Now, I can't drill a hole into human brains to measure oxytocin levels in the brain, but we worked out a way with very rapid blood draws where we could measure the change in oxytocin in blood, which reflects the change in brain. 
And it's a long way of saying what we found was that there was a reason that people reciprocate. And the reason is, is very basic, which is we're social creatures. And we have a mechanism in our brain that says the more money you entrust me with, usually the more my brain makes oxytocin and the more oxytocin my brain makes, the more I reciprocate back to you because that's what social creatures do. We play nice most of the time. Now, the rubber hits the road when we have to answer the most of the time question. So, you know, even uh, you, David, who are a wonderful human being, I know every once in a while you get cranky with people around you. And, and what's that about? Well, high stress inhibits oxytocin release, uh, testosterone, high levels of testosterone inhibit oxytocin. So from those basic research findings, then we started going into companies and measuring brain activity while people worked to ask why some teams are so effective, so productive, are like a, you know, a jazz band riffing off each other, just making beautiful music. And other teams are just, there's lots of friction, they don't work well, they're not very productive. And we had this idea that oxytocin might be part of that. And that's in fact what we found. And then the, the, the whole trick of the book is identify the building blocks of oxytocin within an organization that you can measure and manage for high success. Hmm. So I guess um, the interesting thing is that oxytocin is so related to lots of other things. I mean, I remember your TED Talk, I believe you, I mean, you're a doctor, you gave us all a prescription of making sure that we have at least one one hug a day. Is is there spillover? So in other words, if I'm feeling oxytocin because I just left my house where, uh, you know, I was with my wife and my kids and they all said goodbye to me before I went to go commute into work. Does that make me more trusting when I'm on the commute when I arrive at work too? Or does the brain somehow... I don't know, filter between trust oxytocin, love oxytocin, all the other things? Perfect question. And actually, that's the, the really approach we took in businesses, which is oxytocin's active for about half an hour after it's released. So for half an hour, you're going to be um, more effective as a teammate. You'll be more empathic. You'll be more trustworthy. And so if I build in these opportunities between colleagues at work to induce oxytocin release, now, it's not just with him or her in which I'm better connected. I've got half an hour where I'm actually going to connect better to everybody else around me, all else being equal. So the caveat is uh, you get to work, David, and you're happy because you just got hugs from your kids and your wife. And then, I don't know, crazy knife-yielding student, God forbid, uh, you know, runs at you. Uh, Believe me, your brain can rapidly turn on stress hormones and testosterone and all kinds of things that that'll allow you to protect yourself. And uh, so it's not like you're an automaton. These brain systems are acutely attuned to our environment, including our social environment. The question we asked was, could we reverse engineer this process and ask, if oxytocin makes us more effective uh, teammates, workmates, colleagues, what are the conditions under which I'm likely to get lots of oxytocin release? And then when we go back and measure trust and those components in these organizations, we indeed find that they are substantially more productive, more innovative. People re stay at work longer. That is, they don't, they don't quit as often. Um, and people are actually healthier and happier. They take fewer sick days. They are happier in their lives outside of work. So this is really affecting the triple bottom line. So high trust cultures, employees are more engaged. Organizations perform at a higher level. And you're strengthening societies by making better parent citizens, you know. Hmm. Uh, so that's 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 an amazing little trick for a ancient little molecule in our brain. But we've got to measure and manage it to get that effect out. 
Okay, so two things, I, if I understand everything in the book and we've been talking about as we wrap up two pieces of advice then. It sounds like, if I'm getting the science right, we should do the group hug before the meeting starts, not after, and we should stop the meeting at 30 minutes. Oh, gosh, I love it. Bingo. <laughs> right on. Yeah, exactly right. So I want to recognize the people who are working so hard to help the organization be successful. And part of that is doing this as a group. So we go as a group. We've got a group goal. We connect to each other. And yeah, I love the, the daily huddle. You know, we, we've done a bunch of work with the container store. Often, it's not prescribed, but if you go to the container store in the morning, you'll see the daily huddle, huddle just like with a football team in which people are holding hands. So I, did you play football or sport? What did you play for sport, David? Uh, so I always grew up doing martial arts, so different martial forms arts. of karate, judo, jiu-jitsu, et cetera. So I don't, I don't know anything about that, but when I played sport... Oh, no, we're the opposite of oxytocin. We're trying to choke each other unconscious. <laughs> but, you know, I played football, high school football, and... Yeah, every huddle, I'm holding hands with a bunch of other sweaty teenage boys. Why did the coaches make us do that? Because they know that you are in the dirt with these people, and you've got to be able to count on them. And if you have a physical connection to them, it's like a rig for your brain where the brain goes, oh, yeah, this guy is not just a stupid kid I go to high school with. He's kind of like my brother. The military does this better than others. And that's why we need challenges. We need group challenges because they induce that uh, oxytocin release in which yeah, we can maybe do something extraordinary today. And when we do, let's recognize it. Let's celebrate it. Let's, let's you know, just like a sports team, let's enjoy that win before we take on the next challenge. That's great. Well, you and I uh, need to celebrate an amazing chat together talking about a bunch of different things. Um, I also, in that celebration, need to point people to the book. The book, again, is Trust Factor, The Science of Creating High-Performance Companies. Paul, I want to switch in the final minutes that we have together from the book to you and ask you a couple questions. The first being, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I, I worked with Peter Drucker for 10 years at Claremont College University before he died. And um, I, there's so much Peter Drucker in the book. Actually, so much so that uh, in, the, in the first uh, draft of the first chapter, I said to my agent, she said, there's too much Drucker and too little you. <laughs> so, yeah, but Drucker was all over this. And now we have the science to know kind of why he was saying what he was saying. I think the first is you know, listen much more than you speak. I think that's always good advice. Um, and the second is, you know, to be humble, to, to, even if you're a leader of a giant organization, you don't know everything. And there are people around you who have specific knowledge. So I think really being a good listener, um, I try to practice something I call listening with your eyes. So I'm looking at your picture now, David, actually on the Skype, and I'm looking at your face and I want to give you my full attention, my full presence. I want to give you the gift of being fully aware of everything you're saying, not looking at my phone, not reading email, not doing something else, but be, being fully present. And when you do that, we know the brain releases oxytocin, and now you want to be fully present for me. And now our interactions are so much better. So listening more and really giving people full attention by being present. That's great. All right. So if you're listening to this conversation, you can hear a difference. Email me. Let me know if you can, if you can actually hear that difference. So um, what's the ideal work day look like for you? For me personally or for me uh, consulting? For uh, you personally. Business? Oh, gosh. It, it's embarrassing. Um, I'm a big believer in doing the most important thing first. And so like you, I'm a scholar and a writer. And uh, I use a trick in which I um, get up in the morning and don't get dressed. And it's not as bad as it sounds. I mean, I just leave my pajamas on or a robe, get a cup of coffee, 
get my computer at six o'clock in the morning and work for three or four hours. The kids will sleep in or whatever. And man, you feel like, okay, I work from six or 5.30 until nine. I got a ton of stuff done that was really important to me. Uh, and then, uh, you know, feed the kids breakfast, maybe take a walk and then go back and do that again a couple of times. Uh, that's, that's a pretty darn good day. Hmm. What are you reading right now? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, I just finished a, an amazing book by Stephen Pressfield called The Lion's Gate about the uh, Israeli uh, six-day war against uh, Egypt, uh, Syria, and Jordan, which was a first-person account from uh, the men and women who fought that war, who designed it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's very emotional. They're very funny parts. Uh, they're very sad parts. It's extraordinarily well-written. And it's really about sacrificing everything sometimes for people that you love, for an idea that you love, the idea of Israel in this case. Uh, it, it is really an amazing book that'll have you, I think, take a whole different take on the Israeli-Arab conflict, both historically but also humanly. Uh, so um, anyway, uh, just an amazing uh, book to read. Hmm. What do you believe that most people don't? Oh, what a great question. Um, I believe that, oh, this is so, sounds so stupid and uh, grand, but I'll make it simple. I believe that I can improve the world and I can do that one person at a time. So what I try to do, David, is I try to make every interaction I have with somebody increasing the amount of love in the world. So you can interpret that any way you want, but basically I want you to leave our interaction feeling better than when you came in. I want to have it be so that I did something that made you happier or healthier or better in some way. And in doing that, I hope that you'll do the same for others around you. So I think it's improving the world one person at a time. Mm. Or even just spiking their oxytocin levels for a short period of time and then making, yeah, I love it. Love it. So the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. And our last question is always, what do you think makes someone a leader? I, I love the word free in there, by the way. I think uh, a leader is someone who sets the stage, who, uh, as many leaders have said, who define reality for the people around them and help them reach that reality at the same time, a free leader is someone who is able to step back and see his or her own weaknesses and empower those around them to be successful. So I really think um, at its core, a leader is a servant to the people around him or her. And once you're a servant leader and once you're not an omniscient, omnipotent, godlike figure in your organization, you can just roll up your sleeves and get work done and have fun doing it. Hmm. So I have to confess, we did not think that deeply when we were naming it. We were just riffing off of Radio Free Europe. So, but thank you for elevating not just our conversation, but for even the name of our conversation. It's awesome. So the book again, Trust Factor, The Science of Creating High-Performing Companies, the author, Paul Zach, Paul, Dr. Paul Zach, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Dr. David Burkis, what a pleasure to talk with you and Please put me uh, to service for you anytime I can help you. I'm willing to do that. So uh, maybe in Oklahoma sometime.